Hello there, I'm Miranda Gretton and this is Take a Moment with NCHC, the show where we talk to you and your colleagues about experiences that affect you. Listen on your drive between patients or in your downtime, whenever you get the chance to take a moment. Hello, I'm Kat Day. I'm a speech and language therapist. I work in the community learning disability team in South Norfolk. Hi, I'm Seth Finney. I'm also a speech and language therapist who works in the learning disability team. I work in the West team. I'm Rebecca Minot. I'm a speech and language therapist who works in the North learning disability team. Across Norfolk, there are five learning disability teams. Um, There's the Norwich team based in um, County Hall in the city, the North team based at Kelling, the West based in Kings Lynn, the South in Attleborough and the East in Great Yarmouth. And each team is a multidisciplinary team, but then we all come together as a county as well for peer support and working as a team as well. So let's talk about the role then. Looking at the name in the role and in your job titles, it's speech and language. And that really does suggest it's talking or, you know, something to do with talking. And actually, there's a hell of a lot more to it, isn't there? So tell me a bit about the role. Speech and language is a bit of a misnomer, I think, especially for our client group. We do work with communication and dysphagia, which means swallowing difficulties. Even just on the communication side, we've got lots of nonverbal people and a big part of our role is helping people who don't speak very much or can't speak at all find a way to get their message across. Um, But we're also supporting their understanding of language, their understanding of the world around us, as well as, you know, that whole additional bit that's not in the job title of swallowing disorders. What kind of conditions can people get and and can they happen sort of throughout your life? I think a lot of our patients, because of the fact they're born with a learning disability, often have some kind of swallowing difference really from birth. But a lot of our patients can also develop Alzheimer's or dementia or they might, um, their condition such as cerebral palsies, one can kind of deteriorate as they get older. A lot of us there said a lot of our clients um, conditions deteriorate as they get older particularly sort of their own postural needs. Um, A lot of our clients have um, scoliosis so as their posture changes then their sort of swallowing anatomy can change so that can affect their swallow as well. That's interesting. I guess you sort of think of swallowing as being up here in your mouth and your throat but of course it goes down into your stomach and therefore if you can't sit and stand well everything shifts about I, yeah I never thought of it like that yeah. it's really interesting yeah that can then affect things like gastro and reflux which then if they can't manage their own secretions they can then potentially aspirate on that as well so it throws up a whole whole load of new issues that weren't there before potentially so what's the impact then of living with an eating drinking or swallowing difficulty and particularly if you have a learning disability Eating and drinking is kind of a huge highlight for most people in their days. I think all of us think about what we're going to have for breakfast, what we're going to have for lunch. I think if you go in and you restrict people, it can really change their lives. And also eating and drinking is a really social activity as well for lots of our patients. And they're also really, really aware of each other. So if they're eating different food it it looks different I think a lot of us eat 
with our eyes first. So if things look different, I think it can be quite hard for people to kind of adapt and change along with restrictions. And, you know, that that's also, we also um, use thickener in drinks as well if people's swallows are affected. So I think the drinks, yeah. it, it's very emotional as well. You know, food has an emotional link from when you're just a little baby um, and it carries on being emotional throughout your whole life and if someone suddenly said to you Miranda okay you really like cups of tea but now your cup of tea will have to be a little bit thicker more like the consistency of a smoothie you might feel a bit upset about it and especially if you don't understand why and the reasons can be complex and they're hard to explain and especially to someone with a learning disability, why can't you have chicken nuggets anymore? It can be really upsetting. In the same vein, if you can identify that somebody really used to like something, they don't have it anymore, but you can make an adaptation for something nearly as good as, that can be really powerful too. I worked with a man who absolutely loved garlic bread. Happy with most of my recommendations. And I said, is there anything else you want to ask me? And he said why can't I have garlic bread? And he just couldn't. It's too crunchy, crumbly, and that would have put him at a lot of risk. And I said, oh, you obviously really like that garlicky flavour. What if we made you some garlic mashed potato? And I suggested that to his carers, and they said, oh, yeah, we hadn't even thought of that. And I think it can seem a little bit rigid, our recommendations. So sometimes there's a bit of that creativity in thinking, you know, how can we still give someone that pleasure of enjoying food but in a way that's safe for them. On top of the difficulties with actually eating as well a lot of our clients who don't understand why we're putting these recommendations in place if we do take something away from them that that they love can then increase their challenging behaviours potentially as well so can then decrease their quality of life even more. What you're saying about the emotional connection with food and the social connection with food and how it makes you feel it's not just fueling your body. Do you find that quite difficult when you're dealing with a patient and they're not understanding it, but you know that it's for their own good to continue with your recommendations, but they're just not understanding it? How does that, how does that feel? If we consider that they don't understand, we will look at their capacity to understand if they're aware of what could happen if things go wrong. But yeah, it can be difficult when you've got somebody that wants to eat something that they really they really can't part of our job is kind of keeping that balance of I need to keep the person safe but I don't want to be so overly restrictive that it is having an impact on their on their mental health for a lot of our people you know having having food is is a highlight of their day I guess you have to be quite creative then, really, because you've got to think about ways to, like you said before, about the flavours and trying to keep it as normal as possible, but while still keeping them safe. Yeah, we come up with some weird and wonderful suggestions sometimes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think also, you know, if you look back even 10 years ago to how how things were modified, I think we've, we've come a long way and we're improving. I think people are understanding more that actually, even if you have to have your mushy peas blended into a puree to have them more in the shape of peas is more appetizing to people so there's lots of companies that do that kind of thing 
pre-made but also you can now buy molds for different foods so say you had to have your fish completely pureed you could put that into a mold so it would look more like how you would have expected it to in the past I really do encourage carers as well just to think about okay would I want this myself and if I had a swallowing difference would I want this and how would I want my carers to behave around this type of food you know I think keeping as a carer quite a positive positive outlook on it quite neutral or happy face about the food don't recoil in disgust you might not want a thickened cup of tea but this person isn't having it because they want it they're having it because they need it yeah that's actually quite a simple thing isn't it but I'm sure it must be quite difficult you look at it and you think that looks weird and you scrunch your face up it like you say you have to really actively consider that a lot of the time our clients are really really astute at picking up on those non-verbals so people have to really think about yeah what they're doing with their faces and also what they're saying to another person because our guys pick up a lot (laughs) yeah I always say check your face (laughs) the amount of people that I've worked with who the carers have given them a cup of tea and going oh I'm sorry here's your cup of tea it's not very nice is it you're like I wouldn't want to drink it if somebody told me it wasn't very nice Oh, that's so tricky, isn't it? Because I guess they're trying to be sympathetic to the situation. Mm-hmm. They're trying to show that they understand that it's not what they would have wanted necessarily, but actually they're doing the opposite and yeah. it's having the opposite effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting conversation, this, because I don't know a huge amount about it. I've come across Thickener once and we've got Swallowing Awareness Day coming up, haven't we, in March? And I think that sort of thing is great to have because even if you don't work with people with learning disabilities, you don't work in the speech and language therapy arena, it's still very useful to know about, isn't it? Even if you are any kind of healthcare professional or, well, anybody really, because anyone could develop one of these conditions at any point. So having a sort of general awareness is a good thing, isn't it? So what do awareness days like this mean to you in your profession? I think it's everyone's business people need to be more aware of you know what swallowing difficulties look like what the symptoms might be at what point you might need to ask for support because they can happen to anyone really you know it happens in any age any population any client group I think having an awareness of the IDSI levels which is the um, you know the food texture modifications that if you're going out to see a patient you know what that might look like and and if they're having the correct texture as well for food and drink so kind of educating yourself a little bit on those things would be really helpful. We've had that in a home that we've worked in recently where we've had to rely quite heavily on some of our other MDT colleagues to monitor some of the the care plans that we've put in place and to notify us if people aren't on the um, consistencies that they should be because there's been quite a lot of concerns but actually if the nurses in particular in the teams didn't know about the IDSI levels then they wouldn't understand what consistency those people were supposed to be on and wouldn't be able to notify us if they weren't on the correct consistency. IDSI levels, What? that's an acronym, I presume. What does it that is, yeah, for? sorry. It stands for International Dysphagia Diet Standardisation Initiative. <laughs> well, that rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Um, 
So, and that is to do with the level of thickness, because Kat, you were explaining this to me the other day, weren't you? So talk us through just sort of a, a brief understanding of the ITSI levels. It's a kind of a rating scale from zero to seven. Zero being your thin fluids, being water, going up the zero to four are drinks. So from level four would be like your pureed food and the levels go up in, in thickness as you get to the higher numbers. And so it's a way for us to describe to our clients what they're having and what's safe to have, basically. And we know that everyone's speaking exactly the same language. You can go out and, and ask the care homes to kind of audit themselves against their compliance with the recommendations, which I found really helpful, actually. I'm interested about that compliance thing because being able to audit on the compliance of if people are sort of doing it you know in care homes and things like that just going back to the the idea of the emotional connection to food do you find that carers and parents sometimes don't comply or don't want to comply because it's it's not nice you know we mentioned about making the face and making the apology for handing over the thicker cup of tea do you find that sometimes they might bend the rules because of because of the reaction they get from the patient yeah yeah that happens quite often actually or the fact that they feel that it might be overly restrictive and I think there's also an emotional side as well we talked about the patient but also an emotional impact on the, the carer or the parent often if they have to have a dysphagia care plan it's an indication that the person isn't well and things have changed so I think that can be quite hard for people. I had a family that I worked with recently and the mum said I'm supposed to be able to feed my son I'm supposed to be able to provide food for him and him be able to eat it and gain weight and I can't do that and I feel like a failure because I can't do that it's quite a lot of work to explain actually it's not because you're failing it's his swallow it's nothing that you're doing everything you are doing is correct sort of going back to your original point of sort of do they bend the rules yes she did bend the rules to see to try and get him to eat stuff but actually then inadvertently put him at greater risk by doing so I had a patient who really likes to go to the theatre and part of the theatre was getting snacks and sweets so it was how do we still allow her to do that and have have things that are safe for her to eat but um, yeah, it was such an ingrained thing. I go to the theatre and I'm allowed to pick whatever sweets I want, and which obviously couldn't happen anymore. So I think it's those things that people don't really think about. Well, it's actually, really relatable, isn't it? I it think is. if if any of us, if someone said, oh, Kat, you can't have popcorn in the cinema, you know that's really relatable isn't it we can all think like all of our activities are based around food but isn't that interesting because neither of the activities that you just mentioned are technically about food the cinema and the theatre are about visual enjoyment and auditory enjoyment it, it's so interesting that we link the food with that activity so intrinsically I don't think that many people would think would make that that link so strong if you know what I mean they would think oh she can still go to the theatre you can still go to the cinema that's all still fine but actually it's the level of enjoyment of that activity is diminished because of the food 
And actually, as well, I was thinking as you were talking that it's it must be particularly difficult if you've got other people in your family who don't have swallowing disorder and therefore you've got to do your weekly shop based on the food for that individual and the food for the rest of the family. You've got to think about the meal planning and the prep and all of that. And actually, you're right. It's a huge lifestyle change for a carer. It must be very difficult to support them and to help them be creative with all of that and and it seems like that is as big a part of this job as it dealing with the patients the more you can support the family to be creative and think about how to support the person the more likely they are to adhere to your recommendations which impacts your patient's safety so i think that's a huge part of it is is that consultative role of supporting because it's often the people around the person that you have to skill up and support. So if someone's listening to this thinking I quite fancy that as a profession how do you get into speech and language therapy? You can do it as an undergraduate degree at university of speech and language therapy. There is quite a few universities now that do it. Um, When I trained 14 years ago there was not half as many that do it as now um, and there's also quite a few master's courses now as well so if you have a relevant first degree you can then go and do a two-year master's in speech and language therapy as well and you come out qualified for communication in all areas so whether you want to work adults children learning disability why should someone work in speech and language therapy I'm passionate about speech therapy. I just love it. I love empowering people to get their message across, have the best life that they can possibly have that covers their communication and their feeding. So I guess for me, it doesn't matter how many times I've thought about another job, this is what I've always come back to. I'd recommend to someone, if you're even having a little thought about it, come and spend a day with a speech and language therapist. Explore the career there's a lot online you can find out but get in touch with someone local and see if you can just have a shadowing day or even just a team's call with them to understand you know what it involves but I think that's that's what keeps us all in it is just you know we're so passionate about empowering people. I have a stutter I grew up with one um, so I had therapy um, through a lot of my childhood and it did literally change my life so I wanted to be able to give that feeling to other people to kind of feel empowered and I kind of got into speech therapy and I love it and I think it's those moments that keep me coming back when you feel like you've really made a difference and I think that we do really make a difference. No two days are the same and it keeps the excitement in it And no matter how stressful it is, which it is very stressful at times, like Pat and Sarah have said, it's still the thing that I always come back to. And it's it's, when you see the difference that you make to somebody's life, giving them that empowerment really, really makes you feel good. Thank you for listening to Take a Moment with NCHC. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit the podcast intranet page to leave a comment and for details of our other episodes. You can also follow NCHC on all social media channels.